Mount. Hello, hello. Is that it? Yeah. Got it. All right, thank you. A little entertainment there. Turn with me, if you will, to, t- to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. And while you're doing that, I want you to keep in mind uh, what we've just read from Isaiah chapter 2. As soon as I uh, switch glasses here. get used to this as you get older at night sometimes we're like this <laughs> so I'll spare you that <clears throat> we read from Isaiah 2 the word of Isaiah the son of Amos it shall come to pass in the last days the last days here are the last of the old covenant era and the dawn of the messianic age. That's what he's referring to here. So what he's talking about here is us. He's talking about our time right here. That the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the tops of the mountains. (laughs) Think about that. The base of this mountain is all the mountains. All right, that's pretty high. And it shall be exalted above the hills, and all the nations shall flow unto it. And many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So what is Zion, and what is Jerusalem? Well, let's find out. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18 For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched into a blazing fire and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind. What in the world is he talking about here? Well, first of all, make sure that you understand that the you here is plural. The you is plural. And in fact, if you get the number of the you straight in the new testament when you're reading it things begin to open up to you all right you begin to find out that the christian life is not about individualistic rogue christians all right you find out that our salvation was unto our being incorporated into a body and almost the entire new testament speaks you in the plural (laughs) You are part of a body, and you are not to identify yourself as a free-spirited Christian. There is no such thing as a free-spirited Christian. The spirit of the Christian is fused into the body of Jesus Christ organically, and there is nothing you can do about that, because that's what you signed up for. You know, there are a lot of theories about how to do church membership, how to transfer letters and all of these kind of things. And those don't matter. It's really up to the churches as to how they go about doing that. But the one thing the reborn Christian needs to understand is you are one with the body of Christ. Your, your gifts do not belong to you. I do that all the time, by the way. Your gifts do not belong to you. You don't have the right to withhold 
yourself from the body. You don't have the right. In John 1, we, have been, we see that we have been given the rights of the sons of God, those of us who believe. We have been given the rights of the sons of God. You know what one of those rights is? And I claim it today. Your love. Love me. <laughs> I have a right to your love. You have no right to withhold it. I have a right to your gifts. You have no right to withhold your gifts. Neither do I. It's mutual. It's continually mutual. And not only is it mutual, back and forth, but sideways and up and down and all over a great big network that draws us together and makes us one, one body. So he says, you, you all have not come to a mountain that can be touched into a blazing fire into darkness and gloom and whirlwind. That was, the, that was the first congregation, the one at Mount Horeb, at Sinai. You remember that when they came there and God came down and descended upon the mountain, what happened? It, it, it went into fire. You know, it just, it blew up, so to speak. It just turned into fire. And darkness and gloom and whirlwind and the blast of a trumpet, a, a, a breathless blast of the trumpet. It just kept going on and on and on and on. And the sound of words which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. Moses, you go talk to him for us. We don't want to, <laughs> we're scared. We're scared. Moses said, I'm terrified and trembling. We haven't come to that mountain, the mountain of terror. The first lesson to the congregation of his people in the old covenant era was be scared of me. Be really scared of me. Sinners cannot stand in my presence. Notice that when he was in the tabernacle, you were not to approach it without blood there had to be a death before you could come into his presence and never ever enter into the holy of holies never only once a year by the high priest after he has cleansed himself and maybe he'll come out alive they used to put a rope around him so that they could drag him back out if they needed to when jesus resurrected from the dead he had gone into the holy of holies, so to speak. And when he came out of the tomb, he was the priest announcing atonement is done. Atonement is done. It's finished. He's taken it. The work that I've done has been accepted. He is satisfied. God is satisfied. And that's where we stand right now because we don't, we haven't, we're not coming to that mountain. But we're coming to Mount Zion in the city of the living God in heavenly Jerusalem, which we just read about, to myriads of angels. Did you know that angels are members of the church too? To the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of, righteous, of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better, th better than the blood of Abel. Now, if somebody ever asks you what the church is, memorize that and say it to them. Because that is what the church is. Every bit of that is what the church is. 
Now, there is no institution, no gathering of people like the church. Nowhere in the world. The church stands in a place of its own precisely because it is the only gathering of the people to whom Jesus, the God-man, the creator, the master, the king, the savior, the priest, the shepherd, the groom, the head, and the captain. He is all this to the church. He is all this to the church. There's no other gathering of people like that. And when he calls together his people, he is there in their midst. Right now, Jesus is here. And all of you reborn people know that. You know he's here by the power of the Holy Spirit. You know this isn't just any old meeting. There is nothing in the, in going on in Washington, D.C. right now and in any of the caucuses, any of the committees, any of the meetings that are taking place there that even comes close to being as important as what we are doing right now at this very minute. We are in communion with our God. This isn't a moose lodge. It's not a lion's club, rotary. This isn't some kind of a, you know, a, a club for knitters and butterfly lovers and a forum for people who love marine snails. Whatever it is that, you, that binds you together with your bloods, this is not it. <laughs> this is an organism. It's an organism. And every one of us are parts of it. The church on earth is a mixed multitude. It always has been. There are the reborn in this church and there are those who are nominal. I don't know about this church. I hope that's not true in this church. But in many churches, there are the nominal Christians. They're the, they the ones in name only. I guess you'd call them crinos. Christian in name only. Okay. All the Republicans understood that one. <laughs> So, um, yeah, and there are those who are, uh, who are nominal Christians, those who are, who are either self-deceived as to what they are, believe that all you have to do is to become a part of the crowd in some way or another, and, you are, and, and make an assent. I believe in the Christian stuff. But the question is, who's the center of your life? And you have to be real honest about that. The reborn person knows they quit. They gave up center a long time ago. They're now in orbit around Jesus. Are you in orbit around Jesus? Or are you trying to make everything revolve around you? In a mixed multitude, what happens is that the nominal Christians begin to demand their rights after a while. And if they grow enough, they get into leadership positions. And then they begin to subvert the whole church to worldliness. And this has been going on in the American church for many, many decades now. To where the churches have become quite corrupt. And it's very difficult to find a church that's being run by the reborn. But the reborn need to run the churches. Because they're the only ones qualified. They're, they're alive. They're alive so the church is a mixed multitude, and you need to understand, 
reborn person. And you need to understand, nominal Christian, that there is a wall between you and us 100 feet thick. It's called life and death. You need to know Jesus. You need to know Jesus. You need to be a true Christian and not just one in name only. You don't become a Christian by signing up to a set of propositions. You, come, you become a Christian by being reborn, by being regenerated, by being recreated, by passing from darkness to light, death to life. This is how a person becomes a Christian. This is how a person becomes a believer. And so the church is made up of living souls. And those living souls are knitted together with one another. So the church must not be taken lightly or irreverently. Where the tabernacle and the temple once stood to receive the sacrifices and offerings, the church now stands as the temple on earth based upon the burnt offering of Christ's Death, the first fruit offering of his resurrection, the offering of the end gathering of the saints, which he promised in the prophets of old and began to do in the book of Acts, and the free will offerings of his people, of prayers, of praise, thanksgiving, and their works. There's still work going on in the temple. And corresponding to this one on earth, think about this, at this very moment, at this minute, there's another dimension to this whole thing. And that is there is a temple in heaven described to us uh, here partly and also in Revelation chapter 4. There is a temple in heaven where the one who is on the throne, which is God, is seated, ruling over his people through the church. How do you see the church? It's the capital city of, of, of God. Particularly the capital city of Christ. So the church must not be taken lightly. We have no, no less than a high priest in the church above that corresponds to this one down below. And nothing goes down in this one that has not been sent down from heaven. That's what the book of Revelation is really all about. Is that everything that goes on in the church below is sent down from the church above. Because heaven always rules over earth. That's why Jesus is up there. He's up there because he must be up there in order to rule, in order to bring mediation to his people. And that is going on continually, continually. Every sin that you sin is, as it were, uh, being, being atoned for, or the application of, atone, of, of atonement is continuing to be done, or as Calvin says, that the blood of Jesus is continually distilling for us in the presence of God. So that all of our sins, past, present, and future, are taken care of. Put away forever. He, he, he must continually mediate for us. 
Does that sound like the picture of church that you've always had? I hope, I hope it is or is beginning to. Because we need to make sure that we see the church with the right eyes, with the proper eyes. We need to make sure that when, that when we say church and when we think church and when the concept of church comes up, that what we think about is completely biblical. Because if we see it in his eyes, we'll be a different church member. You'll have to be. First of all, see the plural use. And then after that, let's take a look at the church the way Jesus sees the church. How men see the church doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Many people today see it as scattered, weak, sickly, faint of heart, corrupted, fighting a rear guard action in a defense mode against the evil world losing all the battles do you fear persecution are you ashamed of the gospel do you imagine that satan is the ruler in this world and that his and that his neck has not been put on the block that jesus has put his foot on him and so have all of the members of the church you know what Satan's doing now? He's squirming under our feet. At least he should be. He should be. If it was so in the first century, how much more now? How much more now? Has the church become to you an old rag from the past whose time has all but expired? You think we're in the post-church world now. You know, we do live in a time of... of uh, of obsessive newness. Obsessive newness. Everything's got to be new. If it's not new, it's not good. If it's old, it's bad. Or it's just, bleh. Let's get rid of it. And the whole concept of the church is, is ancient. I mean, it's nearly 2,000 years old. That's pretty old. That's older than Starbucks. And Starbucks is beginning to wear out. Actually, I think they wore out a long time ago. Some of the worst coffee I've ever drunk. <clears throat> you can say amen to that one. Do you think the church is something that you can take casually? Do you look at to her for entertainment? Do you look to her to salve your daily anxieties and worries? You think it's time to redefine the church in the light of the modern age? That's what a lot of people think about the church. And then there are a lot of young people who come to church <sighs> bored. Get me out of here. Get me out of here. Be worried about yourself if that's the way you feel. Be worried. Go to God quick. <laughs> Hit your knees. Hit your knees. So how, how, how the church appears to the divine eye is what we want to talk about. How does Jesus see his church? How does he see his church? Well, see, he sees her as pure. He sees her as glorious. He sees her as altogether lovely. That's the way he sees his church. He sees his church that way now as much as he ever has. He doesn't see his church in any other way. 
That's the way he sees his church. Now, he sees his churches in their sin and in their toil. And as he walks among the lampstands, he goes to the churches individually. Some people say, I don't want to be a church member uh, because uh, I am a member of the universal church. As if that's something superior, you know? Of course, if you're reborn, you're a member of the universal church. Where's the practical application to that? It is the local church. Maybe you have not read the New Testament and see that there is a church of Rome. There is a church of, of Corinth. There is a church of Ephesus. There is a church of Philippi. There is a church of Thessalonica. There is a church of Galatia. There's a church of Canton. This one. And other ones. And what goes on in the individual church is known and reverberates in the universal church of Jesus Christ. We're not just confined to these walls. You know, uh, the house churchers are right about one thing, and that is that we, we should not see ourselves as a building. Don't. Please don't. You're not dependent upon this. If they foreclose on this building, then do we cease to be a church? No, because you're the living stones. You are. You're the building material. And so we stay together. Nothing parts us from one another. Because this is the way he sees us. Jesus sees the church as his creation. And you know, God has a habit, and we know he has a habit because he did it several times in the first chapter of Genesis, of making things, looking at them and saying, it's good, it's good, this is really good, okay? And he does that with the church. He created the church. Jesus is the creator of the church. Now, he watched the church grow throughout the Bible, the church doesn't appear until the New Testament, but it's being prepared throughout the Old Testament. And it's being prepared because the church has a mother. And the mother was developed in the Old Testament. The mother was what we might call Old Jerusalem. And the mother begins as the woman. Remember the seed of the woman? It begins with the, the woman in Genesis 3, 14 and 15. And she is developed throughout until she becomes Jerusalem, Zion in the prophets. And in the book of Revelation, we see her in chapter 12. Glorious, clothed in the sun with the moon at her feet, giving birth through the Virgin Mary, because we are talking about Israel here. And this is why God brought about Israel and the Israel within Israel to be the mother of us all. And she is pregnant in the time of the apostles in accordance with the prophets. And what's she pregnant with? She is pregnant with the church. Israel is pregnant with the church. Pregnant to let the church go. Pregnant to let the church be born into the world. Free of the encumbrances of Israel and all of, all of its ordinances. God watches upon this all the way through here and brings the church to the birth in Christ and through the apostles who are, are, are their founders. This thing keeps slipping on me. 
So he has created it. And what he has created, he also sees as his possession. The church is his. This is mine. I own this, says Jesus. The church is not yours. It's not mine. It's not the elders. It's not the, it's not the preachers. It's not the theologians. It's not the seminaries. It belongs to Jesus. It is his possession. Never, ever forget that. Never. There's where the church goes wrong right there. Is when Jesus is outside of the door, knocking on the door, saying, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Why is he outside of the door? He's not supposed to be outside of the door of the church. And he says, if there's just anybody who will open it up, if there's just five people in Sodom and Gomorrah, if there's anybody in this church who will open this door, we'll sup together. You know what sup together means with Jesus? It's the marriage supper of the Lamb. And not just the marriage supper of the Lamb, it is all of the ways that He shepherds you. All of the ways, all of the means of grace that he has to bring you into the center of his will. What he has created, he owns. He is our master, Jesus. He is our master. And we're his servants. Willing servants. Made willing in the day of his power, says David in Psalm 110. What Christ owns, he also rules. We're his nation. We're his city, his capital city. As we saw in our text, we have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the myriad of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. He's our king. And according to the work of God's almighty power, how much king is Jesus over the church? He, God, has worked in Christ to raise him from the dead. From thence, he was resurrected and ascended to heaven where he, Jesus Christ, was seated at the right hand of God far above all principalities and power and might and dominion and every name that is named in all of the ages. You know, how many ways do you say that he reigns? Authority, power, might, dominion, all of it. All of it over all creation. Over all creation. In all ages, all these things have been placed under Jesus' feet and has been given to him as head over all things concerning the church. His whole reign over the universe is for the sake of church. Church. He says, once again, a you in the plural. All things work together for good. To you, actually, to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Who's that? That's the church. That's us. And everything, he moves heaven and earth heaven and earth, to bring about his will in the church. In the church. Kind of an important institution, isn't it? Well, we haven't even finished yet. I've got 
Five minutes. <clears throat> Better hurry. How else did Jesus see it? He rules it. He sees us as his firstborn, his reborn. We are enrolled in heaven because he looks upon us with favor through the blood of Jesus Christ. We're his attending priests. You know that we're in the temple and we are attending priests with him? We rule with him in the Holy Spirit's power in the gospel, which is the power of God to salvation to all who believe. We are a priestly kingdom. And he's the great high priest king. And we wear crowns too. Crowns that we cast at his feet. Because everything that we derive in order to do good works and to bear fruit in this world comes from him. It comes from him. We're his flock, pure and milky white. And he shepherds us and feeds us and waters us and he corrects us when we go astray, binds our, our wounds when we're oppressed by the enemy. He works all things together for our good, to, for the good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He guides us. He tends us. He, and uh, having foreknown us and he sees us, we walk in life in conformity to his son. He calls us. He justifies us. He leads us to glory. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. We are Christ's bride we're his bride. That's intimate. And it means that we're in union with him. We're in perfect union with him. Our whole life is given in loving submission to him and in our tireless pursuit of his presence. We want to hear his voice in the lattice. And our lips drip with frankincense for him. We love him because he loves us. We adore him. We look forward to his coming so that with our eyes we may behold him. We don't look forward to his coming so he'll get us out of this bad world. We're used to this bad world. And we know where he gives us all the strength to, to live in this bad world. We're waiting for him to come because we love him. And we want to see him. That's the only thing that's missing here. To behold him with my own eyes. To hold him with my own hands. And to walk in his presence with my own feet. Where his body he sees us as his body, striving for perfect union with him, but with one another. With him, but with one another. How do you love Jesus? How do you love God? Do you get this, uh, this sort of God love going on in the heart there? You know, I feel the God love right now, you know. Only reserved for God, the God love, the God emotion, or whatever. You know, this... I've, I've got a sensation, you know. Well, that sensation, you know, it could be cucumbers. It could be, you know, it, it, it could be um, uh, going into uh, extra innings. You know, there's just all kinds of things that cause this, those feelings. So 
how do you love God? How do you love somebody who's invisible? How do you love somebody who you never see and, and your senses never are able to come in contact with? How do you do it? We do it by loving one another. By loving one another. He said so. If you give, if you give a glass of water to the least of the brethren, you have given it to me. If you visit in the prison, you have visited me. If you give clothing, you have clothed me. If you give food, you have fed me. Whatever you do for the brethren is done for him. He takes it. He takes it. And he doesn't take it because he needs it. He takes it because he doesn't need it. There is nothing you can do for God. There is nothing that you can do that he needs. In his sight, we are all unprofitable servants. Let's say that together. Unprofitable servants. You know what? That's the first lesson of discipleship right there. You start out at zero. It always starts at zero. Creation started at zero. And so does recreation. And so does regeneration. Your life starts at zero. God takes the vanity of your life and he turns it into something. He turns it into creation, recreation, regeneration. So we're not worth anything to him of ourselves. And there's nothing that we can give to him. So what does he do? He says, be profitable to one another. To you, I hope to be profitable. And you should hope to be profitable to everyone in this room. And every Christian that you come in contact with. Love him by loving one another. And you know, if you screw up your mouth just right, you can, you can, you can do that, you know. <clears throat> and here's how you do it. You use each other. Yeah, it's a good kind of using, okay? You are my conduit for loving Jesus. So I just do all kinds of good stuff for you. And I praise, praise you when you do well, and I try to encourage you, and I visit you when you're sick, and I try to take care of your needs. And whatever fruit I may have to give to you, I give to you that fruit. And I give it to you willingly, and I give it to you with a... Uh, with a real true compassion for you. But really? You, want, you know what? Really? I want to love Jesus. And he says this is how it's done. It's done by loving one another. He sees us as his body. And he wants to see us in brotherly love with one another, the oil of his anointing, which is the brotherhood of all the saints, has dripped down on us, who are the next salvage of his priestly garment, the place where the head and the body come together. <laughs> and he is the head, and we are the body. And if we disregard the head, then we decapitate ourselves. Because the vital life of the church is Jesus the head. 
I hope the elders will always, always, always pray this for themselves that they will never, ever try to be the head of the church. Never. There is only one head, and that is Jesus. Only one head, and that is Jesus. A lot of blood was shed. A lot of battles were fought to teach the world that lesson in the time of the Reformation. So we're his body. He sees us as his army. We are in conquest with him. We are following him through history, that is successively, one generation after another, conquering and to conquer. And you might say, it doesn't look too good in this country. Well, countries do this in history as far as their fervor in spirituality is concerned. They just, you know, they're up and down all over the place. But then if you look at it from a 3D map, uh, even as this is going on in France, this right here is going on in the east, in the west, in the north, in the south, where as things are, wax, are, are waning in this area right here, things are waxing in another area. Right now, India, Africa, parts of South America, they are where the, the, the early church fathers were a long, long time ago. That kind of fury over the gospel. Christianity is alive and well in this world. Better than ever. The church is, is stronger, bigger, wider, and purer than she's ever been before. You may not see that in this country. To the shame of the church in this country. And that's one reason why I'm giving you this message today. Because this thing can be turned around. Just like that, all it takes is for us to remember that the church works. It works because it's divine. And all of our schemes to reform it are not going to work. They don't even come from us. They come from the crinos that are in our midst. In the midst of churches all over the place. Who are trying to bring the world's influences into it. So this is how Jesus sees his church. And we are to repudiate any worldly, fleshly voice that has a foul opinion in the church and reverence her in him. She's glorious. She's beautiful. She's pure. And the Lord is greatly to be praised in the city of our God and in the mountain of his holiness. Perfect in situation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the sides of the north. The city of the great king. You know, we need to stop listening to the world and the worldly and their follies about what the church is or what it should be. What do they know? What do they know? They're not even alive. Cease ye from man, says the prophet. Cease ye from man whose breath is in his nostrils. For what is he to be accounted of? It is only the sight of Jesus looking at his church that matters. That's all. Nothing else matters. And we need to see his bride with his eyes. How would you like it if, you know, I came over to your house and started criticizing your spouse? How would you like that? No, I don't like the way she dresses. 
I don't like the way she does her hair. I think she needs a whole complete makeover. You'd make two or three more windows in that house that I would be going through. How do you think it makes Jesus feel when the worldly critics start saying, we're past the time of the church? We need a new church to, to emerge. We need a whole makeover for her. We need to rethink the gospel. We need to rethink everything, uh, every way that we go about making presentation to accommodate the modern age. I don't understand that thinking. You know, if all of a sudden the world became more complicated, I'd say, well, we need to turn up the complication level here. But it hasn't. It's become dumber. And what do we have to do in order to be at the, at the same table with it? Get dumber. We don't need to be getting dumber than this world. We need to be well out ahead of it. Well out ahead of it. Jesus knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. And it's been working for 2,000 years. No organization has ever lasted this long and kept its constitution perfectly. That's not the work of man. That's the work of God. That's the work of God. You might say, well, it's, you know, waffled around all over. Yes, it has. But the constitution has never been lost. The constitution of the church has never been lost. And it's known better than ever. The Lord says this through Malachi the prophet. He warned the post-exile Jews who were already growing cold in spite of the fact that they had been in, under Babylonian Persian yoke for 70 years and now had been set free. And in Malachi, they're going cold. They are the forerunners of who will be the Pharisees in the time of Jesus. Malachi 1, verse 6, God says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I'm a father, where's my honor? And if I'm a master, where's my respect? Says the Lord of armies to you, the priest who despised my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? You are presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? In that we say the table of the Lord, in that you say the table of the Lord is despised. It's despised. And when you present a blind animal for a sacrifice, is it not evil? Or when you present a lame or a sick animal, is it not evil? So offer it to your governor. See what he would do with it. Would he be pleased with you if you gave it to him? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of armies? But now do indeed plead for God's favors so that he will be gracious to you. But with such an offering on your part, will he receive you any of you kindly, says the Lord of armies? If only there were one among you who would shut the gates so that you would not kindle fire on my altar for nothing. For nothing. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord of armies. 
nor will I accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations and in every place. Frankincense is going to be offered in my name and a grain offering that is pure for my name shall be great among the nations. Says the Lord of armies. But you're profaning it by your saying, how the table of the Lord is, def is defiled. And as for its food, its food is to be despised. That would correspond to the means of grace in the church. Who needs all that? You also say, oh, how tiresome it is. And you know, and you view it as trivial. Trivial. It's the big sin of our day. And you bring what was taken by robbery and what is lame or sick, so you bring the offering. Should I accept it from your, sac from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of armies, and my name is feared among the nations. And then in Hebrews 12, there's an answer to that right after our text in verse 25. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who, who, him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns us from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then. But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, and we have, let's show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Are you a reborn member of the church? Then know her well. Know her well. Walk about Zion. Look at her towers. And her bulwarks. And her stones. In other words... Know your ecclesiology. <laughs> know what God has put in the church. Know how Jesus sees the church. Don't take it lightly. Know her. Know her. For she is the mother of us all. Work for her unity. When the members are at one, that's when the lights come on. And the more at one the members are, the more it blazes. By the love that, they, that you have for one another, that's how they will know you are Christians. That's how the light blazes into the dark world. By our unity with one another. We should be exploring that unity. We should be working for it. Every individual of us needs to be working, working for it. Binding ourselves to one another. Getting over these Americo bar bar barriers that we have that separate us and put us in little me bubbles from one another. We've got to break those things down in the church. Break them down and come together 
be united to him. Do you want to see the, the church mighty in our time? Larry was praying just a while ago. The world's gone crazy. The evil is mounting up like we've never seen it before and very fast. So what are we going to do? Bury our heads in the sand? The church needs to be strong in these times. In the New Testament, Jesus goes to the church. The apostles already had, right? Before the persecutions began, Jesus goes to the churches and gets them ready. They get them ready for the great evil that is about to come. If there is a great evil coming upon us in this country, we need to be ready for it. And the one thing that we need to be ready for is uniting with one another. Making the church strong. But not just a defensive action. We need to be offensive. The gates of hell are supposed to fall down when we knock them down. Gates of hell don't get up and chase you around. Gates of hell are supposed to try to keep you out. And he's given to the church. It will not prevail against the church. So we need to be in action. One of the great, one, one of the great deceptions and lies of the devil that is so well believed in American churches today is that, you know, is that we need to make peace with the world. We need to come to their table and find common ground. That's the only way that we're going to win them. Well, it's been, you know, it's been going on for a few decades now. How's it going? What's happened is it subverted the evangelical church doing that. Because when we begin to bend to the wicked, the wicked win every time. God knows that. That's why he says, don't mix with them. Don't mix with them. So what he tells us to do is to consider ourselves at war. It is the church militant. We're an army. We are fighting for, for the rule of the world. Not us. Jesus. To advance the law and righteousness. It must go forth out of Zion. It's been said like that throughout the Old Testament. And it has to be fulfilled. That's our job. We're to conquer. Not with, not with weapons. Not, not, with, not with material weapons. That's stupid. Material weapons will burn up with this earth. Our weapons are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Casting down imaginations and every high th thought that vaunts itself against the knowledge of God. We have that power to change lives in Christ Jesus through his gospel. We've got a lot of muscle on our side. And it's not being used. And one of the reasons it's not being used is because the church is believing a lot of demonic lies about itself. And it's time to shut them off. It's time for us to understand what we are what our power is, what our mission is, and to overcome this world in faith. So work for her unity and give of your best to the master. Don't insult him. He is a great king. He is almighty God, a great king. So don't insult him. Give of your best to him. Do for him what you would do for no one else.
Don't do for him what you would do for your governor. Do for him what you would do for no one else. I'll leave that to you. Are you a member in name only? A nominal Christian? Let me warn you about something. You're in trouble. Coming to church isn't doing you any good. Okay? Now, it will when the Holy Spirit turns it on, but it's not doing you any good. It is not a check on your box. It doesn't work that way. Are you self-righteous? Do you think your works are going to gain some favor with God? You could not be more wrong. Because you don't know yourself. You think that you started at zero and you've been, balancing, you've been doing a balancing act between good and bad stuff ever since. That's your philosophy. That is every self-righteous person's philosophy. And that is not the truth. The truth is, you were a trillion dollars in debt when you were born. And everything that you do good is to try to get up to zero, and you'll never make it. So you see, it's hopeless. It's absolutely hopeless. Stop working for yourself. Stop trying to buy God. Stop trying to manipulate Him. It doesn't work. He sees you in the church. And if you're dead in trespasses and sins, you're just an abomination in His sight. I say that to you for your good. And I say that to you so that I can say this to you. There's hope. Especially since you're in the church. Humble yourself under Him. I... I, I I encourage you to pray a prayer. And I'm not going to tell you what the words to this prayer is. I'm just going to tell you to keep praying it until you die or until he saves you. Don't stop for the rest of your life. Pray that he would have mercy on you. Because you're a sinner. You see, to be a, a true member of the church... You have to go through the cross. You don't go through a card. You go through a cross. You have to reckon with the cross. Pray that he would humble you and give you a broken heart so that you may see your sin to the glory of his holiness and that you may, he may have mercy on you and make you a part of his body and his bride. And don't stop until he blesses you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, bind the hearts of each of your blood-bought, reborn children of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> bind our hearts together that we may become a blazing light in this world. Lift us up to the highest elevation so that the world may see and wonder and that the nations may overflow their borders with those who are appointed unto this salvation. Make us a river that glows with the reflection of your glory. Make us a mountain that has its foundations on the summits of all the mountains of the earth. Make us a city set upon a hill that cannot be hidden. Make us an army that sees the stirring of your presence in the treetops as, we go before, as, as you go before us in victory. Make us a grove that bears 12 kinds of fruit, a vine whose clusters have to be carried by two men, an herb in which the birds nest and under which the beasts of the field find shade, a tree that drips oil, 
perfume, an algum of savory incense. Make us a bride that can never depart from the groom, a kingdom that rules in righteousness, a host of prophets and priests who sing your praises and cast our crowns at your feet. Lift up your church, Lord Jesus, and make us strong again so that we may in our time and in the generations to come never again bend to the foolish, foul, failing ways of the world, but that following in your train, we may overcome the world in faith. For it is in the name of Jesus that we pray.